Good morning, it's Aya Wimala, and I'm here in northern Illinois, above Chicago, and uh, it's a beautiful day here. It's cold, but it's sunny, and the sky is clear. It's a great day. So, um, I wanted to read something today from a, a newer book. I think it's been out for just about a year now. Again, it was a, friend, a gift from my good friend Allison. It's uh, by Sharon Salzberg, who's a wonderful teacher. And if you can read backwards, it's called Real Change. Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. So, taking on a big topic. And I think she's a wonderful teacher. And most of us actually know about metta practice because of Sharon, she was basically someone who brought it over to this country from her teachers in Burma and India. So anytime you have a chance to listen to her, and she's very laid back, but very just right on the dot. Doesn't waste a lot of, uh, doesn't waste any words and, and very focused. So this is, this book, I have not read the whole book. But I think it's very timely, and um, I'm looking through and I see something, believing the stories others tell about us. And I know this is often a problem for us, and if you think about our isolation these days, there may be a tendency for us to... um, believe more of the stories that others tell about us. There might be a little bit of, uh, sometimes our self-esteem can take a nosedive if we think that we're, um, if we have feelings of being lonely or feelings of being disconnected or feelings of wanting to just hide under the covers. We may be thinking, oh, I'm not supposed to be feeling this way. And we don't have our usual activities that keep us feeling productive and keep us feeling good about ourselves. And so if we're used to getting that reinforcement from our friends and from the good, the good things we do and the things that we do that keep us, uh, keep us going, and now suddenly we just don't have a lot of that, um, I think it can be a really rough time for a lot of us. And it may come in ways, things may be fine, and then Some kind of small incident may just knock you backwards. So I I saw this sub, it's not the title of a chapter, it's rather early in the book, and the chapter is, okay, I'll tell you the chapter in case you have the book. It's chapter two, and the chapter is called Agency. So this is a section from it. Um, maybe I'll even go back one section. So I want, I, what hit my eyes were believing the stories others tell about us. And the, the few paragraphs before it, the subtitle is Counting on Others and Seeking Salvation from Outside Ourselves. And I know for a lot of us, we're seeing that. We're seeing, um, how, how much of our self, valuation 
uh, comes from outside, out, literally, physically outside sources. It might be in the volunteer work we're doing. It might be from the uh, people we would typically work with in an office. It might be from the things we would always do outdoors or things that we did. Uh, so many volunteer activities have even been suspended have even been suspended, and we don't even know when they'll come back. Uh, I worked with a group going into the prisons, and chances are that'll be quite some time before we can physically go back in and be be working together in the in the jails, the prisons with uh, detained immigrants. So, if so, th that's where I'll start with this: counting on others and seeking salvation from outside of ourselves. I think of the Statue of Liberty in contrast to other iconic women, women who wait. I think of the architectural feature known as a captain's walk, or less auspiciously, a widow's walk, which is seen in some 19th century North American coastal homes. The latter name, folklore has it, refers to the wives of seamen standing there, waiting, pacing, looking out to a sea that had very likely taken their husbands out of their homes and into hers, into the seas. Women pacing in fear, waiting to be completed by something or someone external, waiting to receive rather than to give, waiting to come alive, and waiting some more. When I was living with my father's parents, I was a quintessential quintessential person just waiting and waiting. No missing husband, but a strong sense of a missing life. I was going through the days as though I were a tape recorder with the pause button on. My entire life up until I was 18, I'd felt on the margins, different, left out. I'd felt numb or couldn't think what to do or I was convinced my doing anything was a futile gesture. I was hope helpless to move, to effect change. Suddenly, I wanted a chance for things to be truly different. Early on, I made a key decision that determined the entire course of my outside life, applying to the American Studies Department at the university I attended. In it, I asked to spend my junior year in India studying meditation. I think of that moment so often. I was 17 when I applied, but not, had not even been to California when I sent in that application. How was I not content to simply be a scholar, studying comparative religion, maybe, because of that essential and mysterious and impactful moment when I'm asked now what my major was in college, I often joke, alchemy. It was kind of like that. On my journey, I took a longing as ephemeral as sky riding and embodied it. I didn't think I'd be nauseated the whole long trip to the other end of the world, and I wasn't, but I suspected I'd be frightened for a lot of it, which I was. I went anyway. I was hoping to find relief from my own personal suffering, but that journey formed the foundation for my lifetime of work and service in this world. Anything I intuited about listening within 
or working through suffering or caring about myself to care for others was reinforced and intensified and elevated by the practices of mindfulness and loving-kindness that I later discovered. We can all move off the margins of our lives, the feeling of just watching and waiting for something. We can discover which limitations are crafted by cynicism or hopelessness and go past them into the center of change, giving life to what we care about. Believing the stories others tell about us. One afternoon, I was presenting a workshop with Bell Hooks at the Bell Hooks Institute in Berea, Kentucky. At one point, I spoke about how others might tell a story about us, about our worth, worthiness, and whether we belong or not, whether we're included, and we take it in. That story might permeate our being until it becomes our story. We reshape our identity around it. Someone in the room said, I don't get that. People don't tell stories about us. They don't necessarily know us. I meant what I was saying to include not only narratives that people might say about us specifically, but also the stories that a group of people, an institution, or an institution might impose on us, even in very subtle ways, such as through architecture. The Insight Meditation Society in Bari, Massachusetts, which I mentioned in the first chapter, has a stunning colonnade in front, four columns, two stories high, with seven stairs leading up to a large front door. It turns out what I had always thought of as grand and inspiring told another story to another class of people, wheelchair users. It became clear that we needed to build a new ramp. It can be very difficult to retrofit an old building, and building a ramp in front was going to result in something that would be huge, not necessarily in harmony with the original architecture, and restrict the driveway. That's why we had put the ramp in the back in the first place. In the end, we decided the ramp must go out front because of the story it tells. You are part of what happens here. You are welcome, along with everyone else. Please come through the front door. It may be troublesome. I, for one, am not great at navigating the driveway in my car, but it tells a story about who belongs, and that counts for everything. At that same workshop in Kentucky, Bell Hooks offered another example of a behavior, a way of acting in the world, that told a very potent story of who is of worth and who isn't. Growing up, Bell would frequently see a rich white gentleman who dressed up his dog in a fancy outfit and set the dog in the front seat of his car while he kept his black maid riding in the back seat. How could someone do that, she thought, as it seemed to her that he honored a dog more than a person. That left an indelible impression in young Belle's mind. It has taken her a lot of work on love over the years to counteract the kinds of stories she has experienced people telling her about her place in the world based on her skin color. 
Merck CEO Ken Frazier told the New York Times a story from the days of apartheid about seeing how deep-seated stories could ingrain behavior. This is his story. I lived one whole semester in Soweto. It was completely lawless. There were no street lights. It was a completely separated area where people were contained because the South African government's job as it saw it, as it saw it was to separate blacks from whites. But what I remember more than anything else was interacting with people who their entire lives had been told that they were second class, that they were inferior, and how hard it was to get people, particularly the men, to speak up in audible tones because they had been in many ways told that their voice was not worth living, listening to. In addition to trying to teach people the substantive legal issues, it was a lot about trying to instill self-confidence. What prevents us from taking action may have to do with getting caught up in forces beyond our control as opposed to being beaten down by the specific circumstances of our individual lives or being defined by the stories others make up of us. Think about poverty or institutionalization or disenfranchisement, all of which rigorously patrol the boundaries of what we even think we're allowed to imagine for ourselves. When I consider these large, powerful forces, they bring up the feeling of collapse when we grow numb, when we opt to stop caring because hope really does seem like the cruelest thing. She talks about going to the Soviet Union just after its breakup. Being tied to a system that drains our energy conditions us to futility and defeat. I think of a friend who told me a story about being seven or eight years old, living with her divorced mother and her maternal uncle. The details are dim, she says, but she remembers her uncle breaking her mother's arm and then a social worker worker coming. The social worker refused to supplement the mother's rent so that the mother could move out, saying my friend had already lost her father and would be harmed by losing her uncle too. I don't know specifically what impact this had on the mother, but my friend recalls she wasn't asked about her preferences. Since she was a child, it was assumed her voice didn't count. Something just gave up inside her then, and she has worked her entire adult life to mold a sense of agency and to protect and preserve it, having known what it means to live in a mental state of powerlessness. I was walking with another friend through the streets of New York one evening after dinner when we were approached for money by a man who had clearly been living on the streets. My friend who was newly sober and was concerned the man might use the money to buy some booze. She said, I won't give you money, but let's go into this deli and you can choose whatever you want to eat. I'll pay for it. The three of us entered and I watched the man go through stages of disbelief intimidation, dawning, acceptance, and finally delight. He kept checking, 
really anything I want, anything. I can choose extra cheese. I was once again struck by the toxic humiliation and powerlessness. Society often pairs with poverty, binding them together and sealing them tight. If you can't afford much, you're pretty worthless. You don't look tight, nicely prosperous, or predictable. I thought a lot about choice, about belonging, about having a vision and dreams and a reasonable path to at least try to achieve them. The man in the deli could not have looked more elated, having so little choice in his life. He seemed to savor the novelty of being treated with respect. As an individual with his own needs and desires, I learned a lot watching this powerful exchange. A moment of paying attention, a glimmer of self-worth in another who seems completely bereft. So we can think about that feeling of self-worth and self-acceptance and so on so many levels whether it's a, it's it's a allowing a homeless person to pick out what you want to get them to eat to the self-worth you may feel uh, based on you know what your how productive you feel you're being right now or how non-productive you feel you're being or uh, allowing isolation to kind of bring your your uh, self-worth down, thinking maybe you should have completed a master's degree in the time of the pandemic because everybody's always talking about Zoom classes and everybody's going to school on Zoom. Uh, So if that's not what you're choosing to do, if you're an artist or a musician, you may be practicing your art or your your creativity and... uh, Maybe that's causing you to feel that, like, maybe you're not doing the right thing. So um, think about that. Think about your value and think about, is more of your value coming from outside yourself or do you have a good, uh, you have a good sense of that within yourself? And even if you've had to put a lot of the things that kept you feeling good and productive and... uh, being a being an asset in the world, even if you've had to put those on hold, that doesn't mean you're not a valuable person and that what you're choosing to do with your time is not important. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's exactly that. If you have a lot of extra time on your hands, it's exactly that. It's yours to do as you choose. So don't let this isolation and lack of contact with uh, friends and the typical things you might be doing. Really try to look and see if that's, um, it might be that that's where your your self-esteem comes from more than from that inner self-worth. So, oh, I did drop it. Our time is almost up, so... Um, let's just begin to sit together and sit for a few minutes and um, let's I just want to practice a little bit of uh, metta but sending metta to ourselves and so I'll begin it and then I will uh, 
let you know when I'm leaving, but I'd like you, if you can, to just stay practicing a bit. And uh, we're just, I'm going to just start metta so we can think about ourselves and caring for ourselves and befriending ourselves. Then you can expand it out as far as you want to. Or this may be a time when you need to be focusing more on developing your own self-worth and getting in touch with those qualities that you love and care about in yourself. So a few deep breaths can help us feel grounded. Let your spine be elongated. And just allow your body to breathe for you. Let your awareness be very lightly on your breath. But we always come back to the breath. Now share your focus with yourself. And we'll send good wishes and good feelings to ourselves. We're blessing ourselves. We're sending ourselves the goodness that we want to feel content. May I feel safe in this crazy world. May I feel comfortable with the choices I've made to protect myself and my family. May I be content and easily satisfied. And may I be at peace. Allow yourself to develop a warm feeling toward yourself. See your own goodness. The avenues for expression or for connection may feel cut off for you, but find that self-acceptance within yourself. It's okay to think about the things you've done that have been of benefit to other people, that have helped other people. Think of the people you've loved, the people you've cared for, the animals you've loved and cared for. the work you've done that's been valued to others. Think of the contributions you've made all through your life.
They don't have to be huge, giant achievements. They can be simple things like taking care of a pet, taking care of adults who are sick, cheering up a neighbor, checking in on someone, doing volunteer work, being sensitive to your colleagues at work when they have problems. There's so much we do that we take for granted, but other people notice it. Don't let the words of the, and the actions and the architecture of what others think, don't let that mar your own good qualities, your good heart. And it's okay to just sit with this, feeling warmth and friendliness with yourself and about yourself. We need to be able to love ourselves before we're able to send love out to others. And we can practice metta even when we know there are those pockets of low self-esteem or um, kind of buying into the opinions of others. We can complete the practice, but the most important thing is to really experience that loving kindness towards ourselves. And then we understand how, it, how important it is to send it out to others. And, and sharing, sharing that is the natural outflow of having it for ourselves. So if you can sit a little longer and just be with yourself and get in touch with that basic goodness and get in touch with the person you really are, not what others want to make of you. So have a beautiful day. I'll see you tomorrow. And uh, there are so many good things going on on Saturday. Uh, Check around online. There are some. There's a free uh, a, a free talk at the Bari in the Bari Meditation Center in uh, Massachusetts, B A R R E, and it's a free program and it's on racial injustice and how to how we can work with that. Uh, there are things going on at Blue Lotus and there's just a lot going on. I notice so. Um, if you want to have a day, make a little, like a half-day mini retreat for yourself. Easy, It'll be easy to do on Saturday. So take care of yourself and love yourself. And that's what we all need to be doing. Okay? See you Friday. See you t- That's tomorrow. <laughs>